Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds from May 11th, 2016. This is a more special week than normal. And of course, most importantly, we want to um, thank and recognize our National Nursing Week colleagues, or our nursing colleagues, so we're celebrating National Nurses Week. Um, yay! The nurses know there's a whole series of uh, events planned for them this week that um, some are by invitation only, or, and others, like an ice cream social, are geared only to our nursing colleagues. So um, I won't tell you where to wander into at any point this afternoon. Those of you who know, uh, know where to go to. But, but uh, as Jim Weinstein said last week in his email, we can't recognize or thank enough the important role of nurses um, in a, an institution which is fundamentally about uh, nursing care. Um, we also have uh, special guests joining us this morning um, from our new friends and our exchange partners at the Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital from Aberdeen, Scotland. And we will have an opportunity directly after Grand Rounds for those who can to introduce yourselves directly to our new friends in the, in the foyer here, but it's appropriate that I uh, will introduce quickly and they can raise their hands. We do have three of their nursing leaders, Lindsay Cameron, Susan Swift, and Hazel White are joining us in, in the row, along with their colleagues, uh, Mr. Joe Mackey, who is um, a former board member, a trustee of the Archie Foundation, along with his colleague, David Cunningham, who is the executive director of the Archie Foundation, which is a organization that supports supports the work of Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital. And two physicians are joining us, pediatricians Dr. Steve Turner and our exchange professor who will be presenting Value Grand Rounds tomorrow at noon, as you may have already been aware, in Auditorium H, as well as our Ferguson inaugural exchange lectureship for the public tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock, also in Auditorium H, Dr. George Youngson. So um, welcome to our new friends. <clears throat> There'll be a variety of venues and forums to uh, get to know one another in a more uh, intimate setting and make plans for this ongoing exchange ship. Um, hopefully a trip to Aberdeen next year is in some of our futures, um, but starting after the session. But most importantly, we welcome today our graduating resident who's presenting our grand rounds, Dr. Kate McMillan of the Clan McMillan, and so it is entirely appropriate um, that Dr. McMillan just shared with me. Uh, she spent actually a semester during her um, undergraduate days at the University of Edinburgh and met the, the high chief of the Clan McMillan during those times. Um, it is, it's really always interesting to look at a CV, and the surprises that come out of a CV are sometimes um, Mostly pleasant surprises, sometimes inconsistent surprises, but um, um, but pleasant nonetheless. And in Kate's case, I've certainly come to know her as someone who lives her convictions and serves as an important, perhaps quiet conscience of our residency program. And, and viewing the CV, it's not a surprise. Um, a triple Dartmouth uh, alum, Kate received her BA in religion uh, at Dartmouth College before uh, receiving a, master, a medical science degree at Boston University, returned to the Geisel School of Medicine, where she received her 
a medical degree before joining us here at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for her training. But during her time, in addition to her religious studies, and studies in Edinburgh were about foreign study in religious studies, she served as an Edmund Pellegrino Fellow at the Kennedy Institute for Ethics at Georgetown University. She has been a research assistant at the Ethics Institute at Dartmouth College. She has served, actually now, for six years on the Clinical Ethics Committee here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and is helping to develop a clinical ethics curriculum for our pediatric residency with Dr. Shubkin. This work has been presented now uh, twice at the International Conference on Communication and Healthcare in Montreal and New Orleans, work around the neonatal intensive care unit and shared decision making, as well as uh, evaluating a dynamic clinical ethics curriculum for medical providers in training. And so the title and the topic today uh, of clinical ethics and the child and the cross-cultural encounter uh, will be entirely appropriate and perhaps we'll be kicking off our residency uh, clinical curriculum, clinical ethics curriculum going forward. So, Kate, you're up. Okay, can you all hear me okay? So today I'm hoping to talk a little bit about something that's close to my heart. Um, as Keith discussed, I've been interested in ethics for a long time, far before medical school even. And of course, with my interest in pediatrics, I'm always interested in how these discussions change when we're talking about a child as a patient. And then I wanted to talk a little bit today about cross-cultural encounters. And this is an interest that's coming out of some experiences that I've had with my own family members from different cultures and how their experiences, both as experiencing an illness and interactions with the medical system, have been affected by their cultures. So today, I hope that we'll move through things, starting off with a little time to talk about our own ethics curriculum here in our residency. I want to highlight some of the demographics of our patient population and sort of uncover where there might be some different cultures that we may not be aware of. And then finally, I hope to move through some cases that will illustrate cross-cultural <laughs> ethical principles. And we'll go through best interests and duty, moral relativism and universal morality, and then a little bit of time at, about human rights and human dignity at the end. So the mandatory disclosure page, I have no conflicts of interest to declare. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I did, but. <laughs> so a little bit about our um, residency curriculum. So in its current state, we're based mostly in hour-long conferences that happen about once every two months. Um, we try to draw on topics from the AAP bioethics curriculum, and we spend some time in formal instruction on basic ethical principles. And then we've been using something called the four-topic method, and this is a box that I'll show you that we use to work through cases. And then I think the thing that really makes our curriculum unique and powerful to us as residents is that most of the cases that we are using are submitted by residents or sometimes by faculty out of their own clinical experiences. So these are things that we're actually dealing with at home, and they're issues that touch close to our hearts. So this is the four box method, and as you can see, that there is a lot of content. Um, 
But to sort of summarize the four areas that we move through, the first is we talk about what are the actual medical indications of a procedure or intervention that there's conflict over? What are the potential benefits and harms? So here we're talking about beneficence and non-malfeasance. What are the possible contraindications to this treatment? What are the probabilities of success? So this is where we're gathering all of the, the hard data. And then we talk a little bit about patient preferences, and this focuses on the ethical principle of respect for autonomy for the most part. We talk about is the family or the patient informed of all of the benefits or risks? Are, is the patient mentally capable of understanding these risks and benefits? Are they legally competent? For us, most of the time, the answer may be no. Um, in general, this is a place where you may talk about, does this patient have previously expressed preferences about what to do in this sort of situation? Or are they able to express preferences right now? And if is the patient or family unwilling to cooperate with the proposed treatment plan? Then we move through and look at quality of life issues. So this sort of encompasses all of the principles we've talked about before, beneficence, non-malfeasance, autonomy. And here is where you talk about what is the actual prospect of this patient for a return to normal life? What kind of quality of life is acceptable, desirable, undesirable for this patient? How do we decide who gets to decide? What biases are we bringing to the table as providers? Is there something that we could discuss or discover that could potentially change the plan? And what would be enough to reach the level to forego or withhold life-sustaining treatments? And then finally, contextual features, which I think can, again, address all of the principles we've talked about before, but here also come in the ideas of justice and fairness. So this is where we would talk about conflicts of interest, confidentiality. Are there financial factors playing a role? Is there an issue with the allocation of resources in a small community? Um, are there religious issues that are brought to bear? Are there legal issues? And finally, are there general public health or safety concerns? So this is what we use to move through cases in general. And then we like to spend a little time focusing on what's special about pediatrics. So our residents are coming from diverse backgrounds, and depending on their training or interests, they might have had a lot of exposure or only a little exposure to medical ethics in general. But very few places spend much time talking specifically about what is different about pediatrics. So some of the things that are different is in, in Western American medical ethics, one of the primary principles that we tend to focus on is autonomy. But this can't always apply to our pediatric patients. The infant or young child or some of our, our disabled patients, they're, they're not able to make autonomous decisions. And some of them perhaps never will be able to. So we often operate out of the best interest standard, so we instead have to decide for that patient what will truly be best for them. And this raises a lot of questions about who are the appropriate decision makers for that. Some other things that are a little bit different in pediatrics because we're dealing with this population, we don't have any patient preferences to reference in a lot of cases. Not only might the patient not be able to express their preferences in this particular issue as with an adult incapacitated patient, but they've likely never expressed any preferences beforehand. So where you don't have a lot to go with, and we can only go on the information that's provided by our own interactions, our own sense of humanity, and the information that family provides us. 
However, in a lot of cases, the decisions we make now will affect and later be judged by a patient that develops autonomy and is later able to competently assess what we've done for them. Okay, so here are some of the ACGME competencies that we hope to address in our curriculum. Um, it's the hope that overall by in engaging in these discussions in a thoughtful manner, it will help shape us and be better able to act ethically on our own, that it will encourage the respect for patient privacy and autonomy, that it will spur in us greater compassion for our patients and a greater recognition and sensitivity to cultural diversity. So again, as I said, most of our cases are very personal to us. They're local cases that we ourselves have dealt with. However, some of the most challenging cases that we've come against are those where there is, in fact, a difference in the meeting of different cultures, where we've met with patients who are not coming from the same framework, and it's difficult to understand how they're making their decisions. And these have caused a lot of discussion and, in some cases, moral distress among us. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what is the actual population here. I'm going to focus on New Hampshire. So here's a little bit about New Hampshire demographics. Um, they actually mirror pretty closely the national demographics. We're about 62% white non-Hispanic, 17% Hispanic or Latino, 13% African-American and 5% um, Asian. And we have a slightly larger native population than the national average. However, in thinking about what biases we might be bringing to the table, this is the population that we serve. But Hanover and Lebanon are both over 80% white non-Hispanic. So when we're thinking about how homogenous the area is, it may be with the people that we're surrounded by, but not necessarily where our patients are coming from. So this is about ethnic background. Here's a little bit about religion, which I think is also an important cultural driver. So, in New Hampshire, about 59% of people come from Christian faiths. New Hampshire is predominantly among that Catholic and mainline Protestant. There is a population of Jehovah's Witness um, and a population of Mormons. We have about 5% non-Christian faiths, including Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and other ones who didn't even meet the 1% mark. And we're about 26% unaffiliated. So those are people that say, no, I, I specifically feel that I'm not affiliated with any religion. There's another population that marks off unsure. I don't know how I'm going to declare myself. However, again, both Lebanon and Hanover are different than this population. There are over 70% in this area that say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And so we're coming from a place where the people around us don't have this necessarily as a primary driver for their decision maker. But that's not necessarily true for our patients. So taking this into account, I wanted to take a more global view when I was thinking about how do we deal with patients who are coming from cultures. And while it might be people who live next door to us, the interactions can sometimes feel as foreign as going to another country. So today I hope to draw a little bit on some ideas that are coming out of discussions in global bioethics. And as we move through things, I'm going to present some cases, and I think that each of them are very rich and there's a lot to discuss, but we'll try to group them with ethical principles, although all of them could be discussed on their own um, with all of the concepts. 
So this is the first case. Um, this is a case that I've seen. I've actually seen several similar cases in clinic and among my personal contacts. But here we have the parents of a one-year-old who's coming in and they're due for vaccines. And they are refusing their MMR and varicella vaccines, even though they had previously had all of their immunizations on schedule. And when they're asked, what is the reason for this? They cite the, the concern for the use of aborted fetal cell lines in the production of these vaccines. And they said, this would be a conflict with my Catholic faith. Um, and in fact, several of our live vaccines are grown from cell lines that were derived from two aborted fetuses in the 1960s. So these cell lines have been widely used in scientific research and manufacturing. And it, it has been something that is much talked about in conservative Christian circles. So what questions does this raise? And I'd like here to open it up if anybody has any thoughts on what are sort of the ethical or challenging things that we think about when we're faced with this situation. Christine. Well, you were saying earlier that autonomy often doesn't quite apply in our patient population. Obviously, this one-year-old can't make decisions for herself or himself. And um, the parents have the right to autonomy, but it's sort of like, where, where do we draw the line? Because they're not making the decision for their own health care, they're making it for someone else. So we have to respect their autonomy, but decide what the limits exactly. are. Exactly. Exactly. Where are the limits there? And then there's their personal autonomy, but this vaccines are often a question of public health. And so yep. um, <coughs> single families may not make a big difference, but multiple families choosing to not immunize puts the herd ahead. Yep. Very true. It has an effect, a larger effect on all of us. And is that enough for us to intervene and say, no, you can't make this decision on your own? Any other issues that come up? There's also the issue that this vaccine is proven and isn't likely to do the child any harm. Yes. Yep. There's, you're right. There's very few medical harms for it. There, there may be a harm to, if not the child now, perhaps later, if the family is discussing it, they may feel a harm in having taken part in this, um, or they may not. We never know at this age. Are there alternatives besides that fetal? Right? So the, very few of these vaccines currently have alternatives, but that is something that perhaps could be pushed for in the future. Where's I guess it's also a question if you consider um, those, you know, decade-old fetal cells, human life. Um, mm -hmm. That's really um, sh should be considered a problem. Do they still? Is that still consistent with human life? Yeah. So, and I, I think that this family clearly viewed the fetuses at the time as human life and viewed it as a wrong that they were aborted. But the question is, all of these years out, is it wrong to still be benefiting from that initial action? And is this an active issue or is it sort of a passive participation in that? And that's the question really more for them personally. So. Just a quick word on the Catholic Church in vaccines. So um, this has been a much discussed issue. And in 2005, the Pontifical Academy for Life actually put out a statement that said that in cases where somebody, the child may be put at risk or vulnerable people around them, including pregnant women, their fetuses, the elderly, 
the harm and the sin of the original act is outweighed by the benefits to the patient and to the overall community. However, that's been further clarified both by the Vatican and by the U.S. Conference of Bishops and Cardinals to say that not all of those things are equal in every population. The risk to patients is different in every population. So there is a window for sort of the conscience formation of each individual family. And in, in general, when we're thinking about it, what does the AAP think about vaccines? They don't consider in general the refusal of preventative vaccines as enough to constitute abuse or neglect that needs intervention. But still, I think that this raises some questions about what are the limits of religious freedom. So this is a case from 1944. It actually wasn't based on um, a medical issue, but rather on children participating in consumer process. But it basically says that while parents are free to make martyrs of themselves, it doesn't mean that in the identical circumstances they can make martyrs of their children, particularly when they're young and unable to form those decisions and form their consciences on their own. So again, we come back to the best interest style standard for the child. So in general, children are dependent on adults for all of their basic needs. They're dependent on them for food, for clothing, for the, the feeling of safety and security that's really important for their formation. And in general, the adults who are responsible for children are in fact acting in line with their best interests to the best of their ability. So in general, we accept parents or other caregivers as the appropriate surrogates because most of the time, they're trying to do what's right for their child. However, cultural differences can create differences in the perception of what is in fact the best interest. So while the family may be acting in what they view as the best interest of the child, it may not be the same thing as what we view as the best interest of the child. Additionally, the ability of these adults to act truly with the focus of the best interest as their main focus can be complicated by a variety of issues, so a limitation in their personal resources or the community resources can impact it. And then at other times, there are complex incentives and pressures within their community or within their religious structure that may affect their ability to act freely. So the question comes up again, what are the limits of parental authority? And so. Um, Doug Deakma, who's been involved in the AAP bioethics curriculum, would say that when a parent's decision places a child at significant risk of serious harm, that's when we've reached the limit. So how do we talk about that? Some of the questions to, concern, to consider are if a medical treatment is refused by a family, what is the degree of potential harm? What is the harm that will come to that patient from not having that treatment? What is the imminence of that harm? Is something truly awful about to happen to that patient if we don't act right now? Or do we have some time to deliberate and explore other options? What are the potential harms of the intervention that we're proposing and the parents are refusing? Not everything we offer is benign. And so we have to truly reflect on that when parents are saying no to it and take it into account when we're weighing things. And finally, we need to consider, are there available equivalent treatments? Is there something that's viable that perhaps, while it won't provide a completely equal solution, would be good enough and would leave us in a better place in our relationship with the family and with the family's sort of feeling of being in the right with their culture and their background? 
And then another issue is what is the duty to the child? So Bernard Gerd, who was a philosopher here at Dartmouth, would say that duties in the sense that we think about it in our everyday world are not, in fact, universal. So they're, in fact, derived from the society that's formed them, from the roles that the people are filling in that society. So specifically, I think we need to think a little bit about what are the duties of the parents, what are the duties of the patient, and what are the duties of the physician. So what we might view as our duties to our own children, that may not be the worldview that the family is coming from. The way that they interact within their family and within their community may be a little bit different. Additionally, the duties of a physician may be different. So we tend to be a rights-based culture here, and we focus on patient rights and making our decisions. But there are many other cultures where the duty of the physician is focused differently, and it's a duty to them to meet professional standards. It's a duty to the larger community. It's a very complex issue and can really affect how we're making decisions. And also the care that this family is expecting to receive can be affected by what is the duty of the physician in their own cultural context. So just pausing for a minute to think back on our own child um, that we're discussing here. I, I think that we've seen from our discussions that perhaps they're not completely um, forced by their cultural background to make that decision to refuse vaccines, but that in most cases, the AAP and other people who are setting these standards would say that's not enough to intervene at this moment. But there are cases where that would change. So for example, if this child had been bitten by a wild animal, it would be imperative and it would be imminent and serious harm that was at risk to not vaccinate them. And similarly, if for another set of reasons, a parent had refused the Tdap and the child had a grossly dirty wound, it again would change the context of that decision. Okay, I'm gonna move on to my next case. So this is a case that some of us are familiar with. We talked about it fairly recently in our conferences. And this is one of the more complex cases, I think. And um, also one of the cases where there was perhaps a greater cultural clash because it was very hard to understand where this family was coming from and understand all of the principles of the world that they lived in. So this was a 12-year-old Amish girl who was initially seen in our ED and then several months later was admitted to our inpatient ward for a workup of seemingly discordant symptoms that included things such as abnormal leg and head movements, noisy breathing, and resistance to, and, and then eventually sometimes refusal to eat and drink, which created some serious health issues. So it was not at that point just the bothersome movements, but she was simply not receiving adequate nutrition and hydration. So prior to this admission, um, the family had actually seen a naturopath that worked closely with the Amish community there and had diagnosed this child with multiple chemical sensitivity disorder. And um, among the solutions and remedies that were offered there, one of them was the removal of her from her family home into a separate um, facility. It w I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It wasn't a shed, but it was a separate building that she was living in on her own. And she had contact with her family and community throughout the day, but she was there by herself at night. And she had been removed from her usual familial setting, which in and of itself is a difficult thing for this very tight-knit community. Um, and other things that were sort of playing in a little bit was a language barrier, 
a difficulty understanding their cultural context and the complication of the fact that the Amish do not have insurance. So not only was their entire community involved in making medical decisions and helping the family form this, but they were funding it. So after extensive neurological and psychiatric workup, she was in the end diagnosed with conversion disorder. And this was challenging because there was no real framework in this population for understanding this idea, the idea that something from your mind could have a physical manifestation. So that presented another challenge. And um, along with all of the challenges along the way, perhaps one of the greatest ones was at the end of the day, what do we do with her? What is the next step? Um, outpatient treatment was not an immediate solution because she had such complex needs for nutrition. Um, but the family was resistant to a traditional inpatient psychiatric hospitalization for a number of reasons. They don't have a cultural context for it. It would require greater isolation from their family and community. And again, it was expensive. Um, so what kind of questions can we think of here? What's being raised in this, in this case? How can we treat someone with uh, that's so deeply rooted, that whole life is so deeply rooted in this world that's so different to the world that we experience um, and still offer sort of the ethically correct care um, according to their principles that is consistent with our world um, and, and communicate well with that person? It's, Absolutely. There's also the issue here that the family, I suspect, would like it to be something medically wrong with this child, and they might like investigations and tests when it's clear that none of those are going to help. And so there's, it's almost building on the Munchausen spectrum. So it's a very difficult cultural uh, challenge to explain to the parents and to the child that there is nothing that can be treated with yeah. tests or scans. And this is just yeah. going to take a long time. And I agree that, that it presents sort of similar challenges, but I, I would make the difference that this family doesn't want their child to be ill. They just can't understand the basis of the idea that they might have a mental health illness as opposed to a physical illness. But that was exactly one of the challenges, is how far do we go in our investigation of this? Christine? I think another point that's interesting about this case is that, you know, sort of in contrast to the vaccines, this is um, something where we have to make sure that we communicate, that we don't um, push them away because if there is, you know, if we confront this family or do something that is not delicate, then this girl won't, she's going to need ongoing long-term intensive Absolutely. therapy to, to get better. And so, you know, that's not really an ethics uh, point per se, but it's a, just something that's I think unique about this case that um, we would have to be very um, compromising and sort of make sure that yeah. we well. I think that it actually is part of ethics, though. I think that the importance of maintaining our relationship with the patients is something that is valid to take into consideration. I might try to alleviate the financial um, pressures by seeing, you know, if there were agencies or something to sponsor the care of the child so that you could get that pressure off 
the decision makers. And that was part of the discussion. However, one of the things that we discovered along the way is that this is it's a very sort of conscious choice not to um, buy insurance and not to engage with sort of our modern Western culture by providing their own care. And so um, th that in itself is part of how they're staying true to their values. <laughs> And Kate, as you know, I'm interested in adolescent decision-making, and this was an adolescent who has evolving capacity mm -hmm. in decision-making, and yet she didn't speak our language, we were not able to get an interpreter, and all of her family members were the only ones able to Absolutely. communicate with her in Pennsylvania Dutch, so that she was not able to either tell her history or even her understanding of her own illness without her family, her father in particular, interpreting for us. Yep. That was particularly hard to choose. Um, it's easy to see the, okay, immediate, can't let her start to do that. So we'd all argue, yes, we can <laughs> yeah. but, but then, how do you argue psychosocial damage, right? We believe in it, but it's hard to touch and point at. And so, how do you take someone away and say, oh my gosh, the psychosocial damage is going to do long term, we need to do it right? How human is that? I don't, I don't really know. Yep, it's really hard. I'm going to interpret for Sam House right now. So one of the major struggles was to decide if the way that this child was treated prior to admission by being separated from her family was maltreatment of any yep. kind. And there was a huge amount of discussion surrounding that. <laughs> so I don't know if you all heard Sam, but one of the focuses of the discussion was, was whether or not this isolation was in fact maltreatment. Was that a form of abuse or neglect? So I just want to move on a little bit to the principles that I'm hoping to talk about in this case. So um, with this being such a vastly different culture, I wanted to think a little bit about how do we approach vastly different cultures and how do we decide what is right or wrong. So one school of thought is moral relativism. And at its most extreme, that can come in the form of absolute relativism. So what's right for you is not right for me. And we each have the ability to form our own consciences. And anything that our conscience says is OK is basically OK. However, most of the time um, in ethics, when we're talking about this concept, we're using the idea of a normative cultural ethics. So that's saying that group A has its own cultural context and has created moral rules that fit their community. And group B similarly has done the same. But group A's rules don't apply to group B and vice versa. So to talk a little bit more about this, in cultural moral relativism, we say that moral principles hold weight only in the context of the cultures and societies that have formed them. What is considered right or wrong, as I said, varies widely from community to community. And there's no real basis for a universal set of norms. And in this, they hold that each of the conceptualizations that each community has is equally valid. So. We can't say that group A has a better set of morals than group B. They're all well fitted to their cultural context, and we should accept what is coming from the cultural context of that person or that patient. However, I think that there are some problems with this. Um, one is sort of on an academic level. I think that that school of thought is, in fact, applying the idea of tolerance as a universal moral norm in saying that we should accept without question each culture's set of rules. But I think that the bigger danger here is that 
moral relativism can be a slippery slope or in some cases can be used as sort of a veiled way of excusing bad things. Um, it can be used to say we should accept the subjugation of certain segments of the population, whether that's the child or women or people of a certain caste or a certain race or other parts that make them different in their society. So if we fully accept the idea of moral relativism, then we have to say that apartheid was okay in that cultural context, that slavery was okay in that cultural context, that the sort of extreme traditional way of doing female circumcision or binding of the feet is okay in that cultural context, and we shouldn't interfere with that. And I think that in general, none of us would be comfortable accepting that sort of thing when we're dealing with patients that are in front of us but coming from different cultures. We wouldn't be comfortable in fully accepting that difference. So then what's on the other end? So universal morality. Um, at its most extreme, you can say that there's absolutism, that there's a firm set of what is right and what is wrong in each instance. But I want to talk a little bit more about the idea of universal morality as each cultural's moral norms coming from a common foundation, that we can see threads that are in common between cultures. And there have been, over time, many different conceptualizations of what is this foundation that we're talking about. But I want to talk a little bit about Beecham's universal rules of obligation. So Tom Beecham is a scholar at Georgetown. And he laid out this list of 10 rules of obligation that will look sort of familiar and mostly acceptable to us. So it includes things like don't kill, don't cause pain or suffering, try to tell the truth, Take care of those who are young and dependent or vulnerable. Don't steal. Don't punish the innocent for things that they haven't done and obey the law. And sort of at the pole of that weighing out these obligations, he set out some universal virtues. So these are the qualities that moral persons can aspire to to help guide them in making decisions. So honesty, integrity, um, the will not to do harm to others being trustworthy, and showing gratitude and kindness are among the virtues that he's pointed out. And I want to go quickly back to these and talk a little bit about what is different between cultures. So what is different when you're coming from a point of universal morality is how a set of rules is weighted and applied and when it's OK to break the rules. So while this may be the common foundation that we recognize breaking these rules are wrong, what we might view as a culture as the most important or outweighing another is different. And also, cultures may vary in who they apply the rules to. So some cultures don't view every person as a full moral entity. I think looking back in our own history, we can see that the slave was not viewed as a full moral entity to whom all of our moral rules applied. So how today do we think about weighing out these principles? And I'd like to come again from Bernard Gertz's perspective. And he offered a two-step process for when it was OK to break a moral rule. Um, and that's only if two moral rules are in conflict. And the first step is to gather all of the information, clearly identify which two moral rules are at stake, and the degree and imminence to which they're at stake. And form the, the proposed solution there. Which of these rules am I going to break? And then the second step is before going forward to stop and think, what would happen if everybody knew 
that in some cases you could break this moral rule. So for example, if we are to say, it's okay to steal bread to feed your children if they're starving, what would happen if everybody knew that sometimes it's okay to steal in some instances? And if we are to say that sometimes it's okay to end a life in order to prevent pain or suffering either of that life or another life, what would happen if everybody knew that sometimes it's okay to break that rule? So again, there are some dangers in moral um, universality and that, that can be that we can tend towards moral absolutism. We can inappropriately think that our interpretation of those rules is also universal. And that's basically a form of cultural imperialism. So if we are faced with a patient and we assume that where we're coming from, that our interpretation of it is exactly the same, we're neglecting the background they have, which may differently order those principles. Another danger of this is that it doesn't take into account very well and can lead us to totally miss times where things are simply lost in translation. So I think thinking back to our patient or to similar patients, if, for example, somebody has renal disease, but they're coming from a culture where their language has no word for the kidney, it's very difficult to explain that. And in our patient, it was very difficult to explain that this was coming from a psychiatric illness that, while it was not physical, could be treated in a separate way. It was very, very difficult to think about not only what is the diagnosis here, but what is the appropriate treatment when there's no cultural framework for understanding the choice that we're offering them and the diagnosis that we're offering them. So finally, this is our case three. Um, this was an eight-year-old boy with sickle cell disease. Um, he had a history of mouth breathing, some concern for obstructive sleep apnea, and because of this, a concern for hypoxic episodes, which could possibly lead to a vaso-occlusive crisis or development of maxillary hyperplasia. Um, and before he had come to our own offices, he had been recommended by both ENT and HEMONC providers that he have a TNA. And the family was initially in agreement with that. The TNA didn't sound so bad to them. However, in order to safely perform this procedure, or really most surgical procedures, he would have required a preoperative blood transfusion in order to lower the sickle cell percentage. And this is something that's been demonstrated to really strongly affect outcomes in surgical procedures is this procedure, this preoperative um, transfusion. However, this family was Jehovah's Witness and they refused the transfusion. And so that left us on a, sort of at a standstill. Well, what do we do now? This child should have a TNA. And if they're going to have a TNA, they should absolutely have a transfusion beforehand. What are some of the questions raised here? Are there alternative sources for blood, like one of parents? <clears throat> so that's not acceptable to them. To them. Okay. It would still be considered a transfusion. Are there alternatives to the TNA? That, that's a little, <laughs> I think that the, that might provide a temporary, perhaps not ideal solution. So sort of weighing, do we accept a less than ideal solution is absolutely one of the issues. Or is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there are, in fact, centers um, for 
focusing on the Jehovah's Witness population that will perform procedures like this, particularly more minor procedures, without transfusion. But the key thing here is that this child has sickle cell. So that's what makes it different, is that there, it would be very difficult to find a provider who will say, yes, I will attempt to do this without a transfusion. You've got an operation that isn't life-saving or critical, and actually with time is going to get less necessary. And you've got a side effect profile, which in this case, if this is going to go horribly wrong, you can bet your bottom dollar. So, so, so the decisional balance about weighing up the benefits and the risks is, is it's not very clear in this case. I would agree, but I think that from a medical perspective, the indications for a TNA in him were a little bit stronger than a TNA for the average sleep apnea patient. I mean, I think the, the other thing is the psychosocial risk is very different in this case than in some cases too, and the risk of abandonment from, from mm -hmm. family. What does, what does that mean in the long term for a child as well? If, if that's the outcome, which can be for, for some families, who believe. Yeah, absolutely. It could lead to isolation, either of the family or this patient in particular. So from here, I wanted to move a little bit to discussion of human rights, which in the current conversation in global bioethics is being used as sort of a middle ground between relativism and universalism. And it sort of brings it back to the basics. Um, so what are human rights? They're rights that we need each of us in order to live fully as humans. And this sort of was first laid out in the Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations in the 1940s, and then further was moved on over time to the, um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which was not until 1989 that that came about, and it was sort of a long process. But what are the strengths of a human rights framework in our ethical discussion? So the first is it has a strong force of language. So the rhetoric of human rights is very strong. Nobody wants to be viewed as a human rights violator. So it does a very effective job at setting minimum standards of care and minimum standards of where we draw the line for this can't pass, we can't allow a family or a culture to make this decision, and also putting limits on us as providers. It has an established legal framework. It's accepted by many countries across the world. Um, interestingly, the U.S. has not ratified it, although we have signed it indicating <laughs> acceptance of it, but it's not part of our official legal framework. There's the claim of universality, so everybody is a person who has you know, a right to a certain degree of respect and has a right to having these human rights preserved. And then there's a close relationship between health and the kind of rights that we talk about. So the right to life, the right to food and shelter and safety and bare minimal health care is very closely tied into overall health. So I want to use as a source a little bit for how does this direct us, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which again came out of the United Nations in 1989. So the imperative was to states, but I think that we can understand it also to us as individual providers. And one of the first ones that I want to highlight is the need to respect the responsibilities, rights, and duties of parents or other caregivers or the community 
in providing the child with direction and guidance. So this is recognizing that the parents and caregivers have an important role in shaping the child and making decisions for them, at least until they're able to make decisions. And as that developmental process goes, this is saying they are the appropriate people to be guiding them down that path. We should respect the rights of the child to preserve their identity. And part of that right identity is membership in their culture, in their family, in their religion. That is a core part of their identity. And so it is important to recognize that. And finally, to assure that the child who is developmentally capable of forming their own opinion, be able to express it. And so that goes whether it is in line with where their family might be coming from culturally or if it's against it. But if the child is able to have a voice in it, we should be recognizing that. However, there's a different set of imperatives here that I think are also interesting. So it says every child has a right to life. They have a right to us ensuring to the maximum extent their survival and development. They have a right to the necessary medical assistance and health care, so a right to good health care and making wise decisions. And then finally, I think there's a, a rather strong imperative that we should be taking measures to abolish traditional practices that are harmful to the child. So I think that these things are really valuable and give us some guidance, but at times they can be put in tension with each other a little bit. Um, so where can we go from there? And I would like to just rewind a little bit to the concept of dignity, which is a foundational concept in human rights, but at times in the literature has been thought of as too soft a principle, too nonspecific. We're better off talking about autonomy. Um, so what is dignity? So this is the Oxford Dictionary definition, and it says that it's the state or quality of being worthy of honor and respect. Um, that might be adequate. Um, I think that it's a very complex issue that I'm not able to eloquently express on my own, and many scholars have not been able to eloquently express. But I think, much like um, Supreme Court Justice Stewart said in this 1964 case about obscenity, I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. And I think that each of us have experiences with patients where we can say, this seems in line with respecting this patient's dignity, or there's something not right here. I think that we may be violating this patient's dignity. So dignity in pediatrics. Um, I think that one of the strengths of dignity in pediatrics is because unlike autonomy, which does not apply, which leaves out the very young or the sick, or even if we were to think about the elderly, the formerly autonomous, um, it's there for every person. Um, Dr. Pellegrino would talk a little bit about the idea of inherent <laughs> dignity as opposed to imputed dignity. So what we're really talking about is the dignity that each of us inherently have as human beings. Um, and this is important to think about because the process of being a patient can be a challenge to the imputed dignity, which is the dignity that we get from our position in society, from the esteem that we have among others or for ourselves. And the process of being a patient can slowly erode that, but the inherent dignity is still there and it's something that we can be reminded of and our patients can be reminded of. So I just wanted to leave you on this thought that when all else is in doubt, we can sort of come back to this as a gut check. Is this right or is this wrong? And sometimes that's the first step and we can do the thinking about it later. 
So thinking about the patient who's a sickle cell patient, I think that we have a lot to weigh out here. Um, they have a right to pr having the best health care. They have a right to us trying to ensure their development. The decisions that we make now will affect their health long term. However, they also have a right to maintaining their status in that community. And that's also a part of their dignity. And if we were to force without adequate reason the violation of that, if we're to force a blood transfusion without adequate reasoning, we're, we're creating a serious thing. We're creating a separation for them, not just of their community here, but in their religious foundation, an eternal separation. We're basically taking them out of the prospect of an eternal life. So I think that's a serious issue when it comes to human rights and dignity. All right. So I hope that through the course of this, we've been able to move through summarizing the state of our current curriculum. I hope that we've recognized a little bit the diversity in our own community, that it may be a little bit more than is apparent at first step when you walk around Hanover or Lebanon. Um, and I hope that we've been able to describe some of the concepts that are coming from global bioethics that can be applied right here at home to our cross-cultural interactions. So I want to thank my husband, Raphael, and Bridget, our great chief, for listening and giving feedback on the presentation, for Kathy, for her guidance, not just with this presentation, but in developing our curriculum, my family for support and patience, and for all of you for listening and actively participating so well today. Thank you very much. Very stimulating. A wonderful welcome to Dartmouth. Um, you could, I'm conscious that the chairman um, said to us that today is the week of the nurse. So, so can we look at the responsibilities and indeed some of the position that your three cases um, place the health workers involved in? Because we are not faceless, thoughtless, or without our own Absolutely. sense of compassion and empathy challenges that we have to fit the role into the role. So, so the vaccine, you, we heard that the demography of this part of the USA, we have a large Catholic community. I guess that's represented in your staffing. Mm -hmm. The nurse who has to give the child or not give the child the vaccine, what's the ethical position on the disclosure to the nurse that the act that she is going to undertake by injecting that child has got a potential ethical consideration that she may be unaware of? I think that's an interesting point. I think that we should absolutely try to inform all of the people who are part of our healthcare system what all of the facts are in any care that they're providing um, so that they can make that decision. And I think that really one of the strengths of dignity as a concept is that Edmund Pellegrino would argue that we also very much have to respect our dignity as physicians. So as much as we're trying to honor the dignity of the patient in our interactions, we can't force the 
an act that would be in opposition to the dignity of any provider. We can't force them to do something that's against their conscience. We have to try to find another way around it. And in terms of the shared decision-making that you referred to at outset, are there any Amish doctors in North America? So not in, I am unaware of any that are traditional medical doctors. There was a naturopath who was working with this family. I don't believe that they were coming from an Amish background themselves, but it was something that was more familiar to this community. And presumably there are doctors who are Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that position of shared... How uniform is that side of the care equation? in terms of the, the rights and roles and responsibilities that you, you, you kind of suggest understandably that there's uniformity across the caregiving community in terms of the actions that we have to undertake as clinicians and yet we're very clear and, and, and notably so in, in termination of pregnancy we have, we have people who accept themselves from that. How much of that is uh, a part of this shared decision-making in provision of care in your third case? So, I, you know, I think that's really difficult. I think that each of us has to do a real examination of where we're coming from and where the limits of should I be involved in this case or should I speak up and say I don't think that this is right. But I think that also part of the point that I was hoping to make that perhaps wasn't as clear is that we should also recognize that medicine, our modern Western medicine, is itself a culture that is shaping our interactions. So while there isn't complete uniformity in how we think about and approach things, this is part of the cultural context that is shaping us and isn't shaping most of our patients, even if they are you know, the secular white person from Hanover, if they're not coming from a medical background, they're coming from a different cultural context and we have to keep that in mind. Dr. Riziki. Thank you for a very uh, interesting and provocative discussion. In your in your work, have you seen anybody try and look at long-term consequences of uh, appropriate, however one might define that, ethical decisions concerning patients? My concern has always been, how do you weigh the unintended and often unforeseen consequences <coughs> of a decision, uh, and how do you how do you you introduce that into the decision making uh, as you go along. You know, the best laid plans <laughs> off go asunder. And I wonder how you deal with that. I don't know that there's a great formal way to study that because what, what do we compare it to? A case where we're not making ethical decisions, it's a little bit difficult, but that's part of the information gathering to the best of our ability when we're making this. It's that, that first box. Um, with the, all of the medical indications where we may not be able to say, what if we didn't make this decision with ethics and culture in mind, but we are able to say, what are the likely outcomes with and without this intervention? And that's something that we hope plays into the ethical discussion. So wonderful considerations. Um, again, I invite those who can, we refreshed the refreshments, so those who want to um, greet our Scots, both those from Aberdeen and our local Scots. <laughs> so thank and congratulate her. We'll gather for the next 15 or 20 minutes in the foyer. Everyone have a, a great day. Thank you.